The name of tonight's talk is Torment of the Judging Mind. And both the title and the inspiration for this talk, and this is probably a funny use of the word inspiration, um, came from a retreat that I sat. And as you can probably tell from the title, <laughs> it uh, was not a feel-good retreat. It was a retreat where I felt very confronted by the pain, the torment of the judging mind. I'm quite sure that the pain that can be experienced through the judging mind is not something that is unique to my own experience, and that during the course of a retreat, we often come face to face with this torment in the mind. We experience it in very simple ways on a retreat. Uh, It always is amazing to me the number of ways that we can judge. You know, we can judge our fellow yogis. We can judge them by the way they sit, the way they walk, the clothes they wear, how they eat their food, what food they eat. It doesn't seem to matter what anyone does. We can find a way of judging. I remember a retreat that I was sitting, and it was over at the retreat center. Uh, This was after, fairly shortly after, I had spent quite a bit of time sitting with Burmese Sayadaws. And so, you know, I had been... Uh, told over and over again to guard the sense doors. And so, being somewhat of the good yogi, uh, I I didn't look around a lot. You know, I could keep the eyes downward. I, um, you know, wasn't looking uh, off into the distance. And yet, even with that simple gaze downward, I started to notice something. And it came to light Uh, one day when I was sitting in the front foyer over at the retreat center. And if you've been ever practiced over there, you know that you walk in the front door and off to the side there's some benches. Uh, On each side there's a bench. And you can sit there. And one day I was sitting there, you know, peacefully, calm, watching the breath, experiencing the breath. And then the door opened and somebody walked in. And I didn't look up at the person but, you know, there was the, the gaze was downward, and the, at first it was just color, form. But as color, form appeared, so did a strong interest. You know, I could feel that pull forward. And that pull forward, it stayed with the experience until the moment came when a judgment could be formed. You know, there had to be just enough information to make a judgment. And then, that was enough, letting go. You know, as if there was some deep gratification in being able to make this judgment. Sometimes in retreats, we'll find that the judging mind turns towards ourself. We might experience it, depending on what the relationship with our parents was like, in the voice of our mother or father, as if they are constantly evaluating our practice, what we're doing, how we're doing it. Or it can just be a very self-critical 
tone of judgment, um, where we're commenting on everything that we do. Sometimes with this form of self-judgment, it might come in the form of how we think our fellow yogis are judging us, you know, which is a totally fictitious arising thought in the mind. And we might find ourselves sitting there defending ourselves against the judgment of others. Sometimes our judgment just takes the form of thinking that we know how things should be run. We know what food should be offered. We know how the furniture should best be arranged. Uh, We know what temperature the facility should be kept at. Uh, We know how the office should run. We can become a great master of running the retreat center as we sit here through the judging mind. You know, there's really no end to the different ways that we might find this judging mind arising in our practice. The judging mind is certainly not limited to sitting on the cushion. Sitting on the cushion, it tends to be um, a little safer in some way because what happens in our lives is that we experience all of these same judgments. And if we don't recognize them, we actually make decisions in our lives based upon these really fabricated ways of seeing experience. And we make decisions as if these fabrications are true and live our lives according to these judgments. A really simple way of seeing the impact of judgments in our daily lives can be to just remember what it's like, you know, when you first meet somebody. We can have such a strong first impression of somebody. And, you know, if it happens that we really like some of these impressions, it might be that we make a point of getting to know this person. If we don't like that first impression, it may be that we completely reject that person. And then there can be instances in our lives where for whatever reasons, whether we like or dislike, we have gotten to know that person better. And so many times we will find that those first impressions were completely false, completely, you know, just way more of a reflection of our mind state in that moment of, you know, could be conditioned by uh, beliefs that we hold, ideas that we have, you know, ideas or beliefs that can be based upon the color of a person's skin, could be based upon gender, um, could be based on what we think someone's spiritual spiritual attainments might be, uh, could be based on what we think their um, education might be. You know, there's just so many bases of what we base our judgments on that can be filtering our experience that are all based upon assumptions. 
when I was putting together this talk, you know, the putting together of a talk is really having to live through the, the subject of the talk. And, and so, you know, like when I'm putting together a talk on judgment, it really becomes highlighted in my own life. And I'm, you know, really looking at it, investigating it. And so, you know, during the course of the last week, I had an experience where um, I just knew that anyone looking at it from the outside would not have any sense of what the living of that experience was for me. So I'd like to share a little bit about the experience with you. My husband and uh, and my husband's been my husband for many years, and I were going to watch a movie together. And this was happening just right before Valentine's Day. My husband is also Australian. He didn't grow up in this country. And so Valentine's Day was never such a big thing in Australia. And when he moved to America and saw this, you know, big thing that happens around Valentine's Day, he was rather cynical about it. He sees it more as the Hallmark Day. And so he carries something of this. And so you can imagine that on Valentine's Day, it's not that I'm used to receiving a lot of roses or chocolates or flowers, you know, anything. Um, it's always gone fairly by, gone by without much to do about it. So anyhow, this is just before Valentine's Day. And before we start watching this movie, he says that he has a treat for us, but we have to wait until we're watching the movie. So the movie begins. And then he pulls out a small packet of raisinets, and he says, this is the closest thing to hearts that you're ever going to get from me. <laughs> so you could hear this, and you could think, what a Scrooge. <laughs> you could think, how cheap, how tacky. I mean, you, can, you probably know whatever arose in your own mind. <laughs> but you know, in that experience, in the moment, my heart burst open. I was so touched. And you would have to know kind of the background to raisinets in our life <laughs> to have any understanding of how that could be such a strong bond of intimacy. And yet, you know, we look at how we judge events in our lives, just how many times we put our own set of conditioned, habituated, beliefs, responses onto an event, an event in somebody else's life, and we give judgment to it. That's just another way that we get caught in this judging mind. So our judgments are not very often the faculty of wise discernment. Our judgments are not a reflection of the way things are. But they tend to be a thought arising in a moment that comes out of our conditioning, you know, what, whatever that conditioning might be. And in that moment, we identify with it. We believe it to be true. We give it credence. 
but it can have no bearing on the way things actually are. And we often find when we look at these judgments that they can feed into either an inflated sense of self, where we feel really good about ourselves, or a very deflated sense of self, where we don't feel good about ourselves. And whichever way this goes, it's a recipe for suffering. Central to the judging mind is the sense of self, that we have taken this thought and identified with it in a way that creates I, me, and mine. And as probably we are all aware of, have found through our own investigation, where we run into this sense of I, me, and mine, this is a place of suffering. This is a place of struggle. And what we find happening when we believe these thoughts, when we identify, give credence to these thoughts, that they start to harden into our identities. And we become trapped within these identities, which can be very excruciating. Many times we aren't aware of the pain of the judging mind because it can give the appearance of protecting us. In a moment where there's unpleasant experience, that gives rise to pain, and we don't want to feel that pain. Through the judging mind, we can lash out in blame. We can make somebody else responsible. Or we can become very righteous. It seems to protect us. But it's a false sense of protection. If we pay attention in moments when the judging mind arises, we will see the suffering of it. We will see how in a moment of righteousness, there's a separation, an isolation that happens. There's a pulling away from experience. It's not a moment of deep connection. I know I personally was very amazed to uh, pay, in, in the pain of tension, attention to the judging mind, to get in touch with the pain that is there. How excruciating it is. The Buddha once said, Therefore, Ananda, you should not be a hasty critic of people. You should not hastily pass judgment on people. Who passes judgment on people harms themselves. 
we harm ourselves in all of these judging thoughts. It is that place of I, me, mine, that place of separation, isolation, and that place of not seeing clearly. There was a retreat that I did some years ago where I was in a cabin in the woods for about five weeks. And during that time, I never laid eyes on another person. At some point in the retreat, it dawned on me what a sense of relief I was experiencing in being relieved of this propensity to continually be judging others. You know, where we're living in comparison to the world around us. Where we're continually sizing up ourselves in relationship to others. And it's very painful to watch that. So in this retreat, it was a great relief not to be experiencing that. Though there was still plenty of room for the aspect of judging that one does to oneself. But at least I wasn't um, faced with the, the part that is continually judging others. In the Abhidhamma, we can find that judgment is a form of conceit. It's a form of I am in comparison to the world around us. And it there is described as an imagination that is not based on reality. I wanted to share something that comes out of uh, the translation of the Abhidhamma by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And this is in a part of the Abhidhamma that's the guide to the understanding of the Abhidhamma. And I'll explain it in a a little bit more detail, but at first I just want to read it in its undiluted form because I I found it quite powerful. Conceit has the characteristic of haughtiness. Its function is self-exaltation. It is manifested as a saving glory and its proximate cause is greed dissociated from views. It should be regarded as madness. When I read that, none of it was very surprising, but the last line struck something. It should be regarded as madness. When we um, think of somebody who maybe has schizophrenia, they suffer from schizophrenia, or um, maybe psychosis, our heart can really go out to that person. You know, we just can imagine how excruciating it is to be in that mind frame. And, you know, here's the Abhidhamma saying that this judgment or conceit is a form of madness. 
And, you know, it's a form of madness in that it is delusion. It's not seeing clearly. And with that not seeing clearly, there is such pain, such suffering. In saying that there is this deep suffering that comes with judgment or conceit, I also want to say that this fetter, as it's called in Buddhist teachings, that, you know, it's a real binding of the heart-mind, this fetter is one of the last to go. We don't find it disappearing until we are completely free. And so, in, if we can really let that in, what it does for me is tell me that this is something I better um, have a more friendly relationship with. You know, that it isn't going to help me to keep fighting it but that it can actually be turned into a real place of investigation, a place of inquiry. You know, our practice is really to help us to see where it is that we get caught, we get stuck, what it is that we're afraid of, what it is that binds us. And this conceit is something that is so deeply habituated that it's probably going to be around for a while. We might as well get to know it. And we might as well look into it, come to know it, come to recognize how it arises, come to see all the ways that we feed it, come to have a wise relationship with it, where we cease to feed it. The Buddha, in his teaching, talks about three forms of conceit. The first being superiority conceit, This is the form of comparing ourselves to others and believing that we are better than. Where there's that self-exaltation. We might experience it sitting quietly in the hall. There's other people in the hall. And then we hear somebody else moving. Ah, sign of weakness. We're a better yogi. Or we've been sitting in the hall, we've been sitting for some time, somebody else comes in, they sit down, they sit for a while, and then they get up. Ah, we're sitting longer. We might experience it as we go through the food line. We notice the person in front of us is stacking up their plate 
high with food, but we're practicing renunciation, moderate in what we eat. We find that with this form of conceit, there's an arrogance, pride, haughtiness, loftiness. There's an inflammation of our self-identity. Sometimes this appears to be very pleasurable, gratifying. And yet, when we pay attention to it, we see how painful and hard it is to maintain this, how it's not sustainable. You know, in one moment, we might find that we have this really lofty sense of self, and then it just simply comes crashing down. One retreat in which I was really noticing a lot of the judging mind and, you know, seeing this, you know, uh, this form of superiority judging coming up. And, you know, at one point I just started noting it as just another place to be right. It helped just to bring that balance, uh, to be able to just see it as uh, a habit of mind. Patro Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master, uh, in a book, Words of My Perfect Teacher, says, Of all the negative emotions, pride and jealousy are the most difficult to recognize. Therefore, examine your mind minutely. Any feeling that there is something, even the least bit special about your own qualities, whether worldly, worldly or spiritual, will make you blind to your own faults and unaware of others' good qualities. So renounce pride. I'd like to share a Tibetan story that I think kind of illustrates the pain that we run into when we have this superiority conceit. There was once a very proud, aggressive lion. He thought he was the most powerful beast in the world. And one day a mouse came and told him teasingly, You know, there's another lion much stronger and more fierce than you are. And the lion immediately wanted to find his rival, thinking he would challenge him to a fight, win, and become renowned as the most ferocious lion in the land. And so the lion asked the whereabouts of his foe, and the little mouse led him to a very deep well. He pointed down and said, The other lion is down there. Just look. And the lion looked into the well, and sure enough, he saw the face of a lion glaring up at him from the bottom. The lion roared at it, and the other echoed in reply. The first lion became so angry that he leapt straight down into the face of his enemy, and he drowned. When we are enchanted 
by our own superiority, it leads us into suffering. The Buddha also talked about inferiority conceit. And this is where we are comparing ourselves to others and we fall short. We're not as good. We're maybe unworthy. We can experience this a lot in our practice when we have ideals of what practice should look like. I experienced this very strongly in one of my retreats in Burma where the interviews are not so individual. There can be a number of people in the room and although you're spoken to uh, one at a time, you hear what's happening with other people. And it happened that the woman who was often before me was what I considered to be a very good yogi. In fact, in my mind, she was impeccable. And so I would listen to her reports and then I would think of my own practice and I would feel so bad that I was just not good enough. And it, this went on for a long time and it was a very tortured state. It was so painful. The pain of being inferior, not good enough. a form that we can experience it in our lives, in our practice, is that of being a perfectionist. You know, having this set of ideals that we think we have to live up to. But perfection according to who? You know, who's giving this basis of perfection? It's just further assumptions in our minds. when we get really caught in this inferiority conceit, it leads to a downward spiral where we can collapse into resignation. And, you know, it might actually become more comfortable because we feel like we're, we're just no good so we don't even have to try. You know, if we, don't, we don't even bother to put in any effort. There's such a feeling of inferiority. really helpful to watch, to look for in our practice, the ideas that we do have about how it should be. So that when we meet our experience, we're not, you know, giving ourselves yet another blow because it isn't what we think it should be. It has... touched me very deeply as a teacher to bear witness to the amount of shame that we experience as human beings. To hear from so many people these feelings of inadequacy, not being good enough, being unworthy, and feeling shameful. I remember 
a retreat that I sat, and you know, at the end of a retreat, your heart can often be quite open. And at the end of this retreat, I heard a song by Sting. In one line in that song was, and I hung my head in shame. And when I heard that line, it was just getting reconnected with that sense of shame that can be so prevalent in people and how much we do it. And I just burst into tears, connecting with that pain, that sense of shame. You know, oftentimes as people are expressing it, from the outside, I can sit there and see there is absolutely no basis for this. And yet when we're in it, it feels so true, so real. It feels like the way it is. And it's simply not true. The Buddha talked about a third kind of conceit, the conceit of being equal. When I first heard this, it didn't compute. You know, equanimity, I thought, isn't that being equal? Um, Not being partial? And I didn't really understand it, and it's only been through investigation that I've come to see a couple of things about it. The first is, that it's still involved with comparing mind, even if we're comparing ourselves to be equal. It's still that of this self in relation to another self. There's also an aspect of it that can be similar to indifference Uh, being the near enemy of equanimity. Um, And just to explain this a little bit, you know that um, in equanimity, opening to all beings without partiality, but this doesn't mean that all beings are the same. And so if from almost this place of indifference or not connecting, we don't allow the unique characteristics of each being. We're trying to equalize everything. I lived for a while in Australia, a country that um, it's spoken of in that culture, and something that I did come to see in its experience is what's called the tall poppy syndrome. And just to explain a little bit about Australia and its roots, because it it's more understandable how this syndrome has come to be. Australia was first settled by English peasants and convicts. These were the lower class people from Britain. And they had lived in a way of being inferior. And so here they were in this new country, not wanting to continue to live being inferior. So they don't want anyone to be superior to them. So what 
can happen as a result of this is that as soon as someone starts to rise above or become different in some way, they're cut down. And what can happen is that people aren't able to really fully develop their unique characteristics. These aren't characteristics that are based on worth, but just capacities, function. We can have very strong philosophical ideals about equality that don't allow for these differences. If we look at nature, within nature there can be natural hierarchies. And these hierarchies are just based upon function. And, you know, just to look at a tree. A tree has roots in the ground. It has um, bark. It has a trunk. It has branches. It has leaves, all performing different functions. Does the roots sit in the ground being feeling inferior? to the leaves on the tree because they're out in the sunlight, they're getting all the goodies. It simply does its function. It's not about being perfect in that function because as Ajahn Chah once said, everything falls apart in the end. You know, it's just learning to honor, respect, contribute what we can, letting others contribute what they can, letting these differences be a part of equality. we can find this form of conceit quite prevalent in spiritual communities. You know, that we have you know, a sense of everyone should be equal. So living here in community, we might have a carpenter, a receptionist, a bookkeeper, um, a plumber. And so if the roof starts to leak, do we want everyone to have an equal say in what should happen? Wouldn't it be quite functional just to have the carpenter take care of it? In spiritual communities, we can also, or this happens in relationship too. I mean, uh, it, it can be a way that we actually start keeping score. You know, we notice who's getting the goodies. You know, in the sense that we should all be equal, we should all have equal goodies. So if we perceive that someone's getting more goodies than us, it gives rise to rivalry, competitiveness. When I was reflecting on this form of conceit, I also thought about how there's an aspect of it, this equalizing, that can be not helpful that we do just in Buddhism coming into the West, and particularly 
in relationship to monastics. That, you know, if we're holding deeply to how everyone should be equal, that if we see that, you know, if we're, we're practicing with a monastic, that is common that when we go in and bow, or that monastics have their food offered to them. And, you know, if we start using that as um, a frame of self-worth, we can actually find ourselves anywhere in conceit with this one, where, you know, some people might have a relationship with monastics where they put them on a pedestal. They become godlike, superior. We might have this quality of equalizing, and then we don't feel right when we have to do something that we perceive is going to make us less than. Or we might feel really inferior. But, you know, the truth of it is, in Buddhism, the monastics have a function. They have helped to keep alive these teachings. They have helped to preserve these teachings and are are what has brought them to us, brought these teachings to us in this day. And so, you know, just to notice how it's anything. You know, as soon as we start putting that value-added piece on it, it can lead us into immense suffering. In our lives, we do need to be able to make evaluations, you know, in order to make choices, you know, just to go to the grocery store to decide what milk to buy we make some form of evaluation in order to get a job, in order to buy a house. And, you know, if we just look at buying a house, so maybe we don't have very much money. We can only afford to buy a small house, an old house. This might mean that in doing so, we don't have a huge mortgage that's going to burden us. But if we are identified with this as a form of worth, then we might really suffer. Oh, look at This is all I can provide for myself. I'm no good. I'm inferior. It will be painful. And so it's this aspect of defining self through experience. In working with the judging mind, first, as always, to be able to recognize it. And in one moment of recognition, one moment of clearly seeing, this is just judging mind. And when we see that without reacting to it, it helps to decondition. It's a moment where we're not feeding that habit in the mind. It's a moment where there's more spaciousness with this mind state. As we begin to see it once, create a little bit of space, we begin to be able to recognize more clearly 
the habits, the patterns that give rise to judgment. We also begin to see the impermanence of the judging mind when we pay attention. We begin to see how what we may have in one moment taken as truth because conditions came together in a certain way. In the next moment, those conditions change and the judgment no longer holds up as being true. We begin to see the judgments as being insubstantial, changing. We learn how to not feed these judgments. I found it helpful with the judging mind to use the practice of noting, just to have that steadiness of mind, that that clarity of perception to recognize judging. And, you know, sometimes when the tone of the judging took on a harshness, a brutality, where it's the judging of the judger, um, then I found it helpful to put the word just in front of it. It's just judging. It helped to bring that balance in. At times, I found it helpful to note the tone of the judging. You know, and at one time, I was listening to the tone of the judging, and it was very queenly. And so I started noting queenly judging. And it helped me to hold it lightly so that it didn't move into the harshness, because we can be so brutal on ourselves around this mind state. As we work with the recognition, working with the opening to the pain of the judging mind, to really come to know it, to feel it, not being afraid of the pain, Because as we gain strength and stability, a courageousness of heart in facing these mind states, that's when we can see them as they truly are. And they lose their power. In working with the judging mind, there is the real need to be compassionate, to not be hard on ourselves because this is arising. We sometimes think of judging as being so petty. And, you know, in one sense it is very petty. And so we're hard on ourselves when we see it. And yet, because it is linked in with this conceit, the conceit of I am, which doesn't evaporate or doesn't disappear until we see with total clarity, it's something so deeply habituated, we need to have great patience.
to really recognize that it's a central piece to the ways that we suffer. And that we share this with all beings when we're caught in delusion. And so when judgment is prevalent in our experience, to learn compassion, to learn patience, tenderness, to hold ourselves tenderly at these times as we open to the pain, the suffering, As we investigate judgment in our lives, we find that there's um, in looking at the eight worldly conditions that the Buddha talked about, these are places where we will over and over again run into the judging mind. Marcia spoke some about these in her last talk. And this is where uh, there's pleasure and pain and how, you know, when pleasure is strong, there the, the judgment can so easily come in about how good we are. And yet, when pain sets in, we very quickly become deflated. So just noticing when pleasure and pain are present, do we move into judgment? Seeing if there can be a balance, knowing pleasure, knowing pain, and not having it be tied up with self-worth. We uh, can often experience judgment when we have gain or loss. You know, with gain, there can be abundance, um, a sense of getting something, and can feel very gratifying. And again, this inflated sense of self. And then as loss happens, which is the nature of experience, what is born will cease to be. As this loss occurs, if we're identified, we will again suffer. Judgment is strong in relationship to praise and blame. just paying attention as praise comes our way. As people, you know, exclaim about attributes that they see to be wonderful or things that we've done or said and how good that is and how we can really puff up. And if that's our sense of self-worth, blame comes along and down we go. Fame and disrepute. Just look at Hollywood to have any understanding of this. You know, that, that people become famous, um, have good fortune. You know, the media loves to you know, make some people famous, but then find a fault with them, and they're in disrepute. Politicians, subject to this all the time. You know, our presidents, what can happen? If sense of self-worth is tied up in that, it's going to be excruciating. 
as we look at judgment, there probably can be many psychological components to it. Some of you might be psychologists, therapists, and have an even greater understanding than I would have of that. But there is a level in which we can work with this aspect of experience just from the level of dhammas, just from the level of phenomena. We can see it as an arising in our experience. We can see how it is a conditioned aspect of experience, how it arises out of certain conditions in our life. As conditions change, it changes, it disappears. It doesn't have any substance in itself. It's not anything we can hang on to. When we can see it through the eyes of impermanence, when we can know it in our experience through impermanence, it loses its solidity, validity. It loses its power over us. For those of you that were here in the last couple of weeks, we explored the seven factors of enlightenment. And the Buddha said that when someone has abandoned these three forms of conceit, the superiority, the inferiority, that have been equal to, when someone has completely abandoned those, it is because they have cultivated and developed these seven factors of enlightenment. So if we work with staying steady in our practice, if we work with developing mindfulness, um, investigation, effort, um, concentration, rapture, uh, I'm not sure what I've missed, equanimity, <laughs> I haven't been counting. But if we're developing all of these factors in the mind, this is what will help us to clearly see these forms of conceit and to abandon them completely. He also said that the Noble Eightfold Path is to be developed so that we can have direct knowledge of these forms of conceit, that we, so that we can have full understanding of them for their utter destruction and for the abandoning of them. So the practice that we are doing has within it the tools to help completely uproot conceit in the mind. We can truly walk the path that leads to the cessation of suffering in the mind.
so that we will no longer be tormented by this conceit, I am. We can be freed from judgment and live with a wise response or relationship to all life. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the release from the judging mind. <laughs> 